Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. In this episode, I chat with Matthew Lamerle. It's not every day you come across someone who seems to have lived several full chapters in life. Matthew's story started in management consulting, working with the likes of McKinsey and A.T. Kearney, and advising some of the largest internet companies such as Cisco, eBay, Google, Microsoft, and PayPal. He's authored several fiction and nonfiction books, including Corporate Innovation in the Fifth Era, which we spend a lot of time talking about during our conversation. And somehow, Matthew has found time over the years to build a business alongside his wife, Allison Davis, investing in early stage technology. The pair now manages Fifth Era, their family office, as well as blockchain co-investors, a blockchain fund of funds, which has made over 300 investments and is a backer of more than 30 unicorns. It was truly a pleasure hearing Matthew's insights. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Matthew. Welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you on the show. Great to be here, too. Thanks so much for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to the next few minutes. Absolutely. Well, to kick things off, Matthew, I'm going to try to distill your decades of experience in a few sentences. Um, so you're a management consultant and business strategist by trade, turned active angel investor, author, and advisor. And most recently, you still wear many, many hats as a principal manager of Fifth Era, which is your family office, investing in early stage technology. You're involved with the largest angel investment group in the world called Koretsu Capital. And you also manage Blockchain Co-Investors, which is a blockchain fund of funds. So your list of credentials and experience extends way beyond the short list I mentioned just now. But am I missing anything in that introduction that you think will help us to better understand your focus and work today? Well, you, I already feel like I sound really fragmented and disorganized. Blockchain co-investors is the main thing I do today, and that is uh, the leading blockchain venture fund of funds. We're investors in about 20 blockchain VCs around the world, including several that backed Amber, Pantera, Blockchain.com Ventures, and Dragonfly. And uh, we're investors in about three or 400 blockchain companies and projects through that. So that's really my day job. And the only other things are I am uh, vice chairman at SFOX. Uh, which you know, uh, which is very similar to Amber here in the US and uh, chairman of the Universal Protocol Alliance. I would push back a bit and say it's not <laughs> fragmented at all. Rather, you know, you have become a thought leader in the industry and especially for, I would say, the more traditional investors crowd. Um, so definitely great to have you involved in the space. Thank you. I would love to just dig a bit deeper and kind of dial back a few years to before the dot-com boom in the 1990s, when you were working with the largest companies uh, like Cisco, eBay, Google, PayPal, these leading internet companies. And in a blog post you wrote something that I, uh, I, I found super interesting, which was, I was reticent to climb on a bandwagon with people who were saying that blockchain would be bigger than the internet. You know, as behavioral economics would have it, adopting herd mentality is much, much easier than being contrarian. And few ever find themselves kind of U-turning in fear of being wrong. Has there been a time 
when your thesis about something within the technology space, for example, uh, has been wrong, right? Whether it be an investment or some sort of strategy implementation. Well, there's a lot, Leslie, in that question. I mean, the first point was that uh, after a lifetime of working in Silicon Valley and for very large companies, some of which you mentioned, you know, Google, eBay, PayPal, were all clients, Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, HP, um, and so on. I, I felt like we'd been working really, really hard to build a global connected digital world. Um, and it is it does rest on TCP IP and the internet. So I had some challenges imagining that blockchain was going to displace all of that. And that was why at the beginning, I found it hard to get started. But where I ended up was, and I'm in my own head, I'm still very much of the opinion that blockchain and distributed ledger technology can complement and improve upon the mostly communication-based internet that we have today. And I see blockchain as really more about vaulting on uh, the internet of value, digital monies, digital assets, uh, and enabling the internet that we have to continue to evolve and get better. So so I, I, when I was able to tell myself that story, I could sort of have my cake and eat it too. And I could say, I, I'm, I'm pleased that I did all of those decades of work uh, for companies that were building out the internet we have today. But I also want to participate with all the blockchain uh, and distributed ledger uh, teams and companies and networks that are helping us to transition into the future. So that's basically the investment thesis to some extent. Uh, in terms of getting things wrong, yes, as early stage investors, you often get things wrong. And there's two types of error you make. The first is you back a company that doesn't succeed. And that happens a lot. Um, but the ones that really keep you up at night is when you say no to the company or project that does really, really, really well. And recently, I've had a few of those. I, I, I uh, didn't move fast enough on some of the big projects. Um, we had opportunities to be larger investors at Filecoin and Polkadot and Near, and even more recently at Casper and Solano and 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 others, uh, Algorand. So um, you know, it's one thing to bet and lose. It's quite another to reject someone and then watch as they build an enormously impressive uh, protocol or platform or company. And, and unfortunately, it's the latter that tends to keep you up at night. I'm sure the due diligence process is quite a complex one, even though your investment strategy is going through the best of the best managers, right? What would you say was a very big component of the hesitation behind thinking about investing in the projects that you mentioned? Our strategy, Alison and my strategy, has shifted to trying to identify the best investors in blockchain and giving them capital. Uh, and that's really what we do. We're a fund of funds. So we're investors in 20 blockchain VCs. Uh, uh, all you know, three of your backers at Amber, but a lot of others as well. And I think I'm probably better at identifying great investors than I am doing the due diligence myself, particularly when it comes to a brand new and very complicated area of technology like distributed ledger technology. Here, I don't think that I'm the best person to try and due diligence 
a team of people that are saying they're going to stand up a new protocol or a new uh, network or uh, attack a new opportunity with this technology. So um, the, 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 the longer you are an angel investor, the more you begin to, or an early stage tech investor, the more you begin to appreciate that it's a team sport that a lot of people need to come together to make wise decisions. And I think I'm better placed at finding the best investors in the space than I am at due diligence in the entrepreneurs themselves. Uh, this is really deep technology. And I my, techno, my ten, technological chops don't go that deep, neither do Allison's, who is my partner uh, in this endeavor. So, so that's really why we do it the way we do it. So I was listening to another podcast recently, uh, which is hosted by Jim O'Shaughnessy. This podcast's name is called Infinite Loops. And he said in this episode, we are deterministic thinkers living in a probabilistic world. And this echoes what LinkedIn co-founder and author Reid Hoffman believes, which is that most of your arguments are actually probabilistic, right? Meaning when you actually have data, it's not that the data offer 100% certainty about something. Um, and, and rather, it's you're really trying to get a sense of whether you have some, you know, sort of bet on this probability in, in question, right? What are your thoughts on this as an investor? Mm, mm, that's a good question, Leslie. Let me first say that in a very simplistic world view, I split the world into long-term investors and traders. And I think that just to keep it really simple, long-term investors, which are people like me, uh, we're looking to position uh, ourselves and the entrepreneurs that we back in front of some very powerful tailwinds that are going to move them and the, the opportunity, the business, the project that they're focused on towards some sort of future state that we really believe is going to happen. And if you've got a great team, you have a pretty clear vision of the future, and you're pretty clear about the tailwinds that are going to move in that direction, the biggest single risk factor is actually timing. Uh, you often get the timing wrong. You think things are going to happen faster than they should. Sometimes other people back opportunities and you realize you move too late. Now, that's completely different from being a trader. And so when it comes to the role of data, I think that long-term investors, the data is not really the most important point. Whereas for traders, uh, getting a trading edge oftentimes is about having the best data um, and having the best uh, knowledge of price discovery, liquidity, and uh, who who's likely to take which moves when. So coming back to blockchain and crypto, I think the best crypto traders are definitely very, very aware of the data, whereas I think the best long-term blockchain venture investors are really investing with a different mindset, and it's much less about the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love what you said there. I, I'm really curious to know whether, you know, in, in this world where there are so many... <laughs> So, so many scenarios and situations where we can be right on things, where we can be wrong on things, um, and where we come into this world with sometimes a predeterministic worldview, right? How we are able to escape from 
ingrained mental models, ingrained belief structures about the world to be able to entertain new worldviews, right? Which includes blockchain and your investment thesis at Fifth Era, which we'll talk about. So yeah, what are your thoughts there? Yes, this is so important. All of us grow up somewhere, somehow, and we learn things and we experience things. And as time goes by, we become more and more rooted in what we know and less and less willing to allow that to be displaced. Um, And it tends to be true that people become risk averse as they age and they become less willing and less able to give up the past. Now, there's some reasons for it. And the most simple, uh, the most important one is that we're all engineered to fear the future. Uh, because the future is unknown and uncertain. And uh, biologically, we are engineered to be fearful of the unknown. And so when it comes to this particular topic, uh, it's a lot more comfortable to rely upon the things we understand and know. And even if there are good things in an uncertain future, we tend to be fearful of the the unknown bad things, if you will. So Uh, For all sorts of investors, the most important thing, and certainly for entrepreneurs, by the way, the most important thing is that you develop a mindset where you are leaning into the future, where you are flexible and willing to embrace change, and where you're open and curious about alternative ways of doing things. Um, And you are not too embedded in legacy in the past that you're not willing to change. Um, and it is very hard. It's, it's uh, you know, obviously most entrepreneurs are sort of wired a little bit differently. They're more willing to do these things. Uh, but even entrepreneurs that I've seen oftentimes allow themselves to begin too much in what do I know, what do I understand, and what, what's been true in the past. And I think that this this world, and certainly the world of blockchain and crypto, is much more for the people that can imagine the future and then figure out how to create it. It doesn't mean they'll all succeed. A lot of them won't. But I'm agreeing with your point. A a flexible, future-leaning, creative, and uh, curious mindset is one of the most important things. Absolutely. Let's take what you just said there and talk more about investing. Part of your investment thesis is called The Fifth Era, which talks about A world we are transitioning into, which as you write about, is a new digital economy uh, globally fueled by the internet, right, and complemented by digital assets. Tell us how we've moved past just another technological phase of the industrial era and how value creation in businesses looks different in the fifth era. Yes, that's a great question, Leslie. And I know you've uh, done some research by the way you asked that question. Alice and I wrote our first book on this topic quite a few years ago now, and a free book's available at our fifthera.com website for those people that want to learn more. But the underlying thesis here is that the world has moved through a series of eras. I won't go through them all now, but uh, the hunter-gatherer era, the agricultural era, the mercantile era, and then the industrial era. And in every case, what marked the transition from one period to another was disruptive technology and change. And we tend to think 
that uh, the way things are today, it's always been this way, but it isn't true. Most of the way we organize ourselves, the way businesses are organized and structured, the way we actually think about things like work and the workplace and the corporation and the way it's backed uh, in public markets and so on and so on, all of these things are only about 200 years old. Uh, it wasn't until we entered the industrial era that we started to having uh, having the large corporate model, uh, a public company corporate model backed by public market investors. And it was even later that those companies started becoming multinational and expanding around the world. And we sort of believe that it's always been that way. And uh, it, we actually think that the industrial era is coming to an end. We think we're living in a time of transition to a new future, a future in which the entire world is connected digitally. Right now, we have about half the world's people, about 5 billion are connected. We've got to connect 8 billion people. Uh, most of the world's information is available online today. Uh, just 20 years ago, it wasn't. But we still haven't really built out the digital commerce, transaction, payment, and investing complement of the global communication platform that we have. So we're sort of halfway built out. And Alice and I, going to the last part of your question, we think that the very model of the corporate industrial era company may be coming to an end. More and more, the, the notion of virtual companies, extended enterprises, uh, networks, distributed communities, these sort of things seem to be getting more traction uh, than the we have to do everything in the four walls of our corporation model that we've lived with for the last couple of hundred years. And I think this terrible pandemic we're living through right now, the COVID pandemic, has also accelerated all of this. I think more and more of us are working virtually, more and more of us are open to multitasking. Many people are becoming parts of distributed networks and doing some of their work in new and novel ways. And we think these aren't the exceptions. We think in the future, this is going to be more like the rule. So I could go on and on, Leslie. I think I've probably said enough. Uh, there's a lot more about this topic for anyone who wants to follow up and learn more. Absolutely. I picked up on one word you repeated quite a few times there, which is the word connect. Right Back in 2010, you helped to coin the phrase Generation C, which stands for Generation Connect, uh, in a report called The Rise of Generation C Implications for the World of 2020 which was just last year. Um, so in a yes. recent blog post, <laughs> yeah. you wrote that, quote, they are now moving into their power curve years. Yes. The years in which they earn a lot, accumulate wealth, and drive the business, financial, and political decisions that shape the future, end quote. Um, yeah. You have five kids, <laughs> Matthew. Yes. Uh, I'm sure the Lamoral household is ground zero when it comes to observing just what makes up the DNA of Generation C. How has raising your kids and your interactions with them helped you to develop this thesis? Yes. So you really ask great questions, Leslie, and you've obviously done your homework. So thank you for that. So, um, so what this began as an exploration of how does connectivity change the way people think? Uh, that's where this notion of Generation C began, because for most of us who were born and, and did our education and our early business years 
before we had connected devices, the internet, the availability of information and so on, we're sort of wired and programmed to live in a world where sometimes it's hard to get things done, where physical really matters, uh, you know, where our limits, uh, our scope and our horizon and our limits are somewhat defined by the realities of not being able to access everyone and everything and all information and so on. So what changes when you only ever know a connected digital world? And we started doing that work thinking that it was going to be about more about technology and how people use technology. And of course, we discovered it's much more profound that the connected generation, which is basically anyone that was born after 1990, so you can see the the leading edge of that group are about 41. You know, they're entering their 40s. These people actually do see the world in quite a different way. And uh, in that free book I talked about, Fifth Era, uh, at the fifthera.com website, uh, we give some specific examples. On this call, I won't be able to go into a lot of detail. Uh, but this connected generation see the world in a quite different way. Even some fundamental issues like uh, what's a friend or how do I entertain myself or what is work and what is the nature of work. Uh, they think about it very, very differently. And it comes from this notion that the world's information is available at my fingertip, all of the connections uh, of my own peer group are accessible 24 by 7 and I can reach out to other people and I can interact in different ways, it actually leads them to be programmed to view the digital economy and the digital world quite differently. And uh, there's a host of examples. I mean, we could talk about GameStop. We can talk about Dogecoin. We can talk about um, even the notion of uh, virtual worlds and the metaverse. We could talk about NFTs. All of these things that are coming so fast right now don't make sense to people born before the 1990s. And yet the, the Generation C, the connected generation, doesn't have the problem of understanding them. Uh, and even notions like digital value and digital scarcity are very hard for people to understand who were not born into it. And and uh, as you say, I had five kids. I watched some of the things they did, and I learned from that. But I was also a very early video game investor. I, I backed a lot of video games. Uh, some of them people on this call will know quite well. And it taught me a lot, uh, just watching virtual worlds and MMORPGs and virtual goods and virtual trading platforms and currencies. I learned a lot that I think is turning out to be relevant for, in parentheses, the real world. Absolutely. You know, what you just said there about being a video game investor and spending a lot of time trying to understand virtual worlds, that is where we're taking a lot of cues from to understand how the crypto space is going to evolve from what we understand it to be now, right? And that is still many, many levels from what people who aren't even aware of crypto understand the world to be. Yes. As we transition to crypto, I think that we're already moving down this path. Um, you know, the notion of a, of a digital money, uh, a real-time digital money, and the notion that you can buy things electronically in real time without going through an intermediary, and the notion that uh, goods 
could be valuable even though they're only digital and there's been no physical manifestation. These concepts are already quite challenging for a lot of people around the world. Uh, you just saw Charlie Munger, uh, the 97-year-old co-founder of uh, Berkshire Hathaway uh, in the last couple of days, clearly struggling, really struggling to understand Bitcoin and, and this whole dialogue. And I'm absolutely sure I could take most uh, 30-year-olds and they would not be struggling anywhere near as hard as, as Charlie Munger. Uh, Charlie Munger, by the way, also struggled to understand the internet. And initially, I remember his quotes where he, he believed that the internet wouldn't amount to anything or very little. Uh, and of course, today, every industry has been dramatically impacted by it. And of course, Apple is the largest shareholding of uh, Berkshire Hathaway and the driver of most of their returns. So I would have hoped that Charlie Munger would have learned from his Apple experience not to be quite so negative about uh, the the crypto uh, experience, but of course, um, it's very hard when you've lived so long and you're so familiar with the past. It's often very hard to understand the future. So, so anyhow, let's go back to crypto and ask me uh, uh, some crypto questions, then, Leslie. Crypto is a in highly interdisciplinary field, right? You can understand it from a technical angle, from a social and philosophical angle, from a financial angle, or a combination of these. How have you approached your understanding of the crypto infrastructure stack? Yes. So so this is something, uh, it's a great question. Uh, I don't understand TCPIP. And if you ask me to explain the details of TCPIP, the protocol that upon which most of the internet is based, if you ask me to explain in detail, I wouldn't do a good job. Um, if you ask me to explain gene editing, DNA sequencing, and CRISPR-9, uh, I would not do a good job. Uh, I'm not a technologist by training, but that doesn't mean I didn't do uh, consulting work for Google, eBay, HP, Intel, or Amgen, Genentech, Gilead. Um, and I was able to understand the promise of their products without understanding exactly how they were built. And and I could say the same thing about the Nike shoes I'm wearing right now. I mean, I don't know the, the details of the material science that goes into a pair of Nike shoes, but I understand Nike shoes in terms of their branding, their marketing, their functionality, and some of the dynamics of those marketplaces. So, so the point of that is given your personal experience and given the lens that you wear, when you look at crypto, you're going to see different things. Um, now, I think the crypto community has been doing a bad job in the sense we expect everyone who interacts it to be a technologist. Um, and it's not just that we expect people to get to grips with hash rates and Merkle roots and the like. Um, by the time we get to NFTs, non-fungible tokens, we use vocabulary that is not very helpful. I mean, we don't call them non-fungible Mona Lisa's and non-fungible Ferraris and non-fungible homes. We just call them homes, Ferraris, and Mona Lisa's. So why do we force people to understand the notion of non-fungibility and tokens to understand the notion of scarce digital goods? So why am I saying all of these things, Leslie? My particular lens uh, as a long-term 20 or 30-year internet 
and fintech and digital content investor from Silicon Valley, is that when I look at blockchain, what I see is the ability to have distributed global digital monies, crypto commodities, and digital assets in very efficient, streamlined ways. I see the development of open source software in large networks of developers and communities, a continuation of Linux, if you will, the notion of taking open source uh, ways of doing things and extending them to more and more areas of computing and of software development. And then from the content perspective, I see the extension of digital virtual goods that we were playing around with in virtual worlds and MMORPGs, I see those principles coming out into the, in parentheses, real world uh, and taking everyone by surprise. So that's what I'm seeing. Now, I know there's a lot more there. The politics, I'm I'm not a political scientist. I, I never studied politics, so I don't really understand many of the political and government issues associated with this movement. I know a lot of people are very passionate about those topics. But for me, given my background and the lenses I wear, I see uh, a dramatic transformation in the way compute, search, store, and sharing occur globally. I see the arrival of native digital monies and native digital assets to upgrade the internet that we have. And then I think I have a bit of a sense of why NFTs really matter. And those are the things that I'm most excited by. Now, the enterprise applications of distributed ledger technology, I'm not so sure about. I I, I can see why, uh, in some cases, collaborative software that is transparent and immutable and visible to to a large uh, community of people, why that would be a powerful thing. Um, and so supply chain and logistics and healthcare applications and all these types of things, I could see why they might make sense. But conversely, I think uh, traditional databases can be pretty capable as well. And I'm not quite sure if you need blockchain to solve all the issues of the healthcare industry or the trade finance industry. So I'm still I'm still a little bit more cautious about some of the applications. Yeah, step by step, right? Proving out the thesis of being an alternative to perhaps the current money system first, um, and then kind of moving into other industries. Let's talk about the role of crypto in the future of investing multi-generational wealth. You ran a survey asking your newsletter subscribers who you know are a mix of Bitcoiners and no-coiners uh, surveying their concerns about crypto investing. One of the reasons was Bitcoin is too volatile, right? And multi-generational wealth, as you write, is not impacted by daily or weekly volatility in speculative markets. Um, But when we talk about crypto, we are talking about money for the next generation, right? Money management for the next generation. Why do you think institutions like private banks and wealth management firms are reticent to offer Bitcoin products Despite news about some of the largest financial institutions getting into the space now, you know, some who are taking part in building up next generation infrastructure to power investing in this new asset class. 
Yes, well, there's a lot in that question as well. Um, in terms of multi-generational wealth, um, it's true that at some point every wealthy family uh, became wealthy because someone was entrepreneurial. Um, there really aren't any very wealthy families that didn't uh, begin with an entrepreneur. And that entrepreneur might have built a business, but they may also have been very good at investing or finance, but they took risk. And that's the real point. They took risks, they paid off, their family became wealthy, and then they passed down the wealth. And unfortunately, as time goes by, uh, sometimes that entrepreneurial spirit begins to leave. And future generations are encouraged by their advisors, primarily by their financial advisors, to take less risk and to hang on to what we've got and don't take the risk of losing what we have. And unfortunately, that takes you down a certain path where you tend to be risk averse. In traditional financial services, there is the notion of a balanced optimum portfolio, and that optimum portfolio begins with certain assumptions. One is that uh, you can gain the data from the different asset classes upon which you'll build the optimum portfolio. The second is that markets are efficient and that uh, prices should be appropriate for each asset that's going to be in the portfolio. And then financial advisors, private banks, wealth managers, they'll do some mathematics and they'll spit out some information based upon your age, your wealth, your years to retirement, the size of your family, and other things. And they'll basically end up, historically, they would end up telling you, put roughly 60% of your money in public equities and 40% in fixed income. And maybe they would have some allocation to something called alternatives, but that would be hedge funds buying public equities and fixed income. There might always also be, there would be an allocation for real estate too. Well, the problem with that whole paradigm, which is the paradigm that most banks and most asset managers are very familiar with, is that they don't have in the optimum portfolio calculation the highest returning asset categories in the world. So they haven't ever had early stage venture. They don't have small cap real estate. And most of them won't even have private investments more broadly defined. Why? Because there is no data. Because these are disorganized asset categories that are not well tracked. And because they're not tracked, you can't put them into the data set. And therefore, you can't analyze them. And so the optimum portfolio is actually a suboptimum portfolio based upon the information they have. Well, that's done a disservice to a whole generation of investors because in the last 20 or 30 years, we have dramatically changed the nature of the world because of the rise of the internet and because of the increasing dominance of innovation and technology in value creation. And I think uh, pretty smart people are beginning to understand that point. It's not very hard to see. You just look at the list of the world's most valuable companies and the highest returning asset categories. And that's why we're seeing, at least in America, and I expect it's going on around the world, uh, smart investors, multifamily offices are demanding, give me more exposure to early stage technology. Give me more exposure to small cap real estate. Don't just give me 
the public market equities and fixed income that is available to everyone. Now, Alice and I have a had a horse in both races because she was the CFO of BGI BlackRock, which created iShares, and iShares sort of democratized access to all the public market investments, and everyone can get them at a low cost these days. And unfortunately, that also, uh, uh, well, not unfortunately, that leveled the playing fields and took out a lot of the cost, which was good for the investor, but became a bit of a challenge for the investment advisor. Now let's get to crypto. So crypto is entirely a new emerging asset class without a lot of high quality data and without a lot of history and provenance for these same people to analyze it. And so they'll ask a question like, well, what's the volatility of Bitcoin? And what are the correlations of Bitcoin with other asset classes? And then they're, you know, you're confronted by the reality that Bitcoin is only 12 years old and it hasn't actually experienced through an entire cycle. It, you know, we haven't seen it go through a major recession, actually. It was founded at the sort of middle slash end of the last Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and we haven't really had a global recession since. So how do we know what the correlation of Bitcoin is to a recession? How do we therefore know what the correlation of Bitcoin is to other asset classes? It's only been going up at an extremely rapid rate. Um, And so why am I saying all of these things, Leslie? It's because at its core, traditional financial institutions are not equipped to understand this new emerging asset class. It's not just that they operationally don't know how to provide Bitcoin custody and secure digital wallets and access for their investors and their people. That is also very challenging. But stepping before that, they don't even understand how to get their heads around a digital money that someone creates with a monetary policy that is written down in code, um, and they don't understand why that should have value, and they can't analyze it through their traditional means of analysis, and they can't drop it into their optimum portfolio calculations. They just don't know how to deal with it. And up until about a year ago, their best course was to do nothing. Right. I mean, in in this context, they they felt that they couldn't advise it because they didn't understand it and they couldn't get their hands around it. Now, what's just happened in the last year is that the world's most sophisticated investors have started investing in it, Bitcoin especially. And that unfortunately for for these other folks has put the shoe on the other foot. Now it's dangerous for you not to understand Bitcoin and crypto because your clients are asking you and the world's smartest investors are investing in it. And that makes it dangerous, hazardous for your health not to have a point of view. And so I I think that that is shifting very quickly. I think very smart uh, registered uh, investment advisors and financial advisors and private banks and wealth managers are getting on the, the bandwagon now. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of them just begin with Bitcoin. A few of them add Ethereum. It's going to be a long, long time until they get further down the ranks of the altcoins, but it is coming now. 
Absolutely. Did any of the results within the survey specifically like surprise you, right? You had a list of maybe 15 to 20. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Thanks for, so this is a survey we did. You already mentioned it. We basically added a uh, asked a bunch of our investors, uh, you know, do you have any Bitcoin exposure? And if not, what's holding you back? And then if you have some exposure, why don't you have more? What's holding you back? And the big so what of that was actually, uh, there were an awful lot of reasons people gave for uh, not participating more. And secondly, and we didn't mean to trick them, but we did have a few questions that were just false in the sense we asked, you know, are you afraid that Bitcoin can be replicated indefinitely? And you and I know it's it's scarce. It's 21 million. And that's the monetary policy. But uh, there is this notion that you can subdivide it in Satoshi's and you can fork it and copy it endlessly. And therefore, it's not scarce. So anyhow. Going back to the the bigger point was that there are a lot of reasons why people are scared to take the first step. And that tells you that there's a lot of confusion. Ordinarily, uh, if, if there was no confusion, but there was a lot of uncertainty, everyone would agree on the same list of issues, right? It'd be uh, the number one issue, we can't do the following is this, then this, then this. Everyone would agree they would all agree they can't take a step and there's there's a good reason why they won't take the first step. Well, in the case of our survey, uh, different people voted for different reasons why they couldn't get started and some of those reasons were patently wrong. And so that really just talks to confusion and FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt. And um, we tend to see that in disorganized marketplaces where there's not a lot of information. Uh, and there's there's both a uh, an education component of it. We, the crypto community, need to educate the world a bit better about what we're doing. We shouldn't spend all our time talking about hash rates and Merkle roots. We should probably spend a little bit more time explaining why digital monies that can be uh, transacted in real time at essentially no cost are superior to traditional approaches in traditional formats. I I think the same, by the way, is true of other aspects of crypto. Uh, Right now, we're getting hammered on energy usage. But, uh, you know, the right comparison of Bitcoin energy usage is the dollar bill and the the penny coin and how much energy did it take to create those. And no one knows the answer to those questions. No one's actually Mm. calculated how much (laughs) energy goes into a quarter you know, which is made of metal that's mined in some far-flung location and transported around the world and smelted and and worked on and so on. So fear, uncertainty, and doubt is there both because we haven't done the homework, it's a new asset class, there's a lot of unanswered questions. It's also there because every trade has two sides, someone who's long and someone who's short. And the short person wants the price to go down. So they're in the business of spreading fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And conversely, the long person is trying to make everything sound perfect and squeaky clean and and very exciting. And both of them are probably wrong. Most cases, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, So anyhow, I hope that answers your question a bit, Leslie. Yeah, absolutely. And I Definitely encourage our audience to go and check out uh, the Fifth Era blog, including this survey as well. There are some particularly interesting insights, and I'll link to it in our show notes. Uh, But Matthew, as we wrap up here for a final question, 
I hope it's a fun one. How has growing and building a business with your wife, Allison Davis, made you a better decision maker and a better investor? Well, I think being an investor has made us uh, better uh, over time. Um, so when we first, you, you mentioned we had first careers, second careers, eventually we became full-time investors and we were fortunate that we were in a position to do that. And when we first became investors, we didn't hadn't done our homework. And, and in retrospect, we fell into a lot of traps. Uh, we were in Silicon Valley. We wanted to participate in early stage technology. The internet was just being built out. Uh, but we didn't really understand the dynamics, the returns, the risks, the the best practices of early stage technology investing. Uh, it took us a while to get our heads around it. And here we are 20, 25 years later, and we're still doing it. And that should tell you something. I mean, it's been good to us. Uh, and we're excited to be early stage blockchain investors. But um, we did learn a lot. And we wrote a book about that. And we've published a bunch of webinars around, you know, mastering early stage technology and options for investing in blockchain and crypto, where we've tried to share what we've learned. Uh, but so going back to your question, um, it's been a journey. We've learned a lot along the way. Uh, it's worked out in the end, but we've had as many failures uh, as we've had successes. The good news is the successes tend to be bigger than the failures. So uh, I do think the risk-adjusted return of early-stage technology is a very high one. And when it comes to blockchain, that's palpably true. I mean, we started uh, investing in blockchain about 2013. We really ramped it up with the help of Blockchain Capital, where Alison chairs the advisory board in 2014, and we loved them as a firm. Uh, then we got involved with a few others like Pantera and Blockchain.com Ventures, and more recently Dragonfly, all of whom are investors in Amber. And today, uh, we're very, very happy. We've, in we've invested in over 300 blockchain companies and projects through our fund to fund strategy. Uh, we've backed more than 30. We have money in more than 30 of the blockchain unicorns. And uh, things are just going exceptionally well. And I and I just want to say, and I should say, you know, a big thank you to all of the engineers and the computer scientists and the developers and the entrepreneurs. We know that everything we're doing as investors is built on their shoulders. And in blockchain, the, the lead actors are definitely you guys, not us. Uh, but we're along for the ride. We enjoy what, what you're doing. We enjoy how uh, we, we're getting involved. And we're also having a lot of fun sort of joining boards, joining advisory boards and mentoring teams. Um, and uh, the results are very clear. I mean, I, I couldn't be more excited by the transformation of uh, financial services and the global digital economy. And I think blockchain is playing a huge role in that. Um, we are going to have a future of digital monies and digital assets. It's inevitable. And I think NFTs are much more real than people appreciate right now. Um, and I think that the future is definitely going to be a digital one. So it's excited to be a part of it. Yeah, and speaking of blockchain capital, I had Kindle Shaw on, who is an investor yes. at blockchain, uh, yeah. to speak uh, in our NFT series. So definitely go check that out. I think they are yes. 
an amazing um, investment firm as well. So yes. Matthew, appreciate your involvement in the space. Thank you for being an industry thought leader. And really, it was so great chatting with you and wonderful to have you on the show and hope to bring you on again very soon. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. You ask really good questions and I know you must have prepared. So thank you very much. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.